Hello all, uh, and welcome to this session. Uh, this is SRV317, uh, unlocking high-performance computing uh, for financial services with serverless compute. Uh, my name is Harsha Nepani. I'm a solutions architect with AWS. And uh, it's my pleasure to welcome uh, Ms. Bin Liu from Fannie Mae. She's a senior director uh, of risk modeling and analytics. Uh, she's been uh, uh, she has over 20 years of experience developing uh, high-performance computing uh, using large-scale Monte Carlo simulation uh, at, at Fannie Mae. And this particular uh, use case was developed by uh, uh, Ben and uh, her colleague John Simon, who is also in the room, um, to essentially uh, develop Monte Carlo simulation on AWS uh, as, as the industry's first uh, simulation using AWS Lambda. Thank you. All right, uh, just to level set, uh, we're going to first review the session objectives. Uh, this is an advanced level session. Uh, I'm assuming you have background on uh, AWS services. Uh, particularly Lambda and S3, because uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Lambda, a great deal of <coughs> Lambda. But in case you uh, are not familiar with this service, I will certainly uh, give you an overview uh, and then uh, dive into the session details. There are three segments uh, in the session. The first segment is we'll, we'll review the um, uh, grid computing architecture, uh, some of the use cases of HPC, uh, and then I will set the stage for Bin Lu to walk us through Fannie Mae's use case of uh, how Monte Carlo simulations were executed on uh, AWS uh, using Lambda. And then the final segment will be uh, a, a live demo of uh, Lambda functions using uh, the MapReduce framework. All right, let's get started. Um, Overview, this is the segment uh, one where we'll be reviewing HPC and uh, grid computing framework uh, and how to um, implement such framework on AWS. HPC uh, high performance computing is, um, uh, is a framework that allows users uh, to, um, to solve complex business problems um, for which applications require large amounts of compute infrastructure uh, to power these uh, uh, application workloads. The high-performance computing world is evolving uh, continually and rapidly, and um, the main motivation here, the main driver here, is both economics and also technical. Um, as HPC um, systems are um, uh, executing large amount of computations, uh, there is a need for a large scale of uh, uh, compute resources uh, that are required to execute these jobs. Uh, but also, applications uh, now have um, uh, ability to not only scale out um, and also ability to have high scale performant and low cost infrastructure access uh, when you extend this framework into the cloud environment. Um, why is it important uh, for uh, customers to have this capability where they can extend the grid computing framework to, into the cloud? Because uh, workloads, particularly HPC uh, and grid computing workloads, require massive amounts of uh, uh, parallel um, uh, computing architecture requirements. Um, and especially in the financial services uh, industry, uh, customers 
uh, need uh, the grid computing framework that can tolerate uh, some latency and should be resilient, uh, but the optimization is more focused to uh, it overall uh, throughput uh, using Compute Grid. So that is some of the characteristics of HPC implementation uh, on grid. Uh, many organizations are now also looking to uh, new ways to perform compute-intensive operations, uh, compute-intensive tasks uh, at a lower cost. So that is, uh, that is a significant driver for many customers. And AWS provides virtually unlimited compute and storage options uh, for uh, providing such uh, framework um, and the capacity to uh, uh, launch on-demand on resources um, and uh, ability to uh, auto-scale uh, provision resources on the fly uh, and, and essentially ability to have resources that, that fits your uh, compute requirements and just have enough ca capacity uh, without the need to worry about um, uh, either idle time or lack of uh, capacity with the compute grid, right? So with that being said, now let's talk about some of the use cases of HPC and some of the implementations of HPC. Uh, at a very high level, um, there are two variants of HPC. Uh, there is a, a cluster HPC and there is a grid HPC uh, that you could implement. Uh, there are two significant differences between the two uh, when you start implementing these. Um, cluster computing and grid computing are two flavors of uh, uh, computing standards that do support HPC parallelism, right? Um, on the left side, you see HPC clusters. These are for application workloads that require tightly coupled uh, integrations, um, uh, and there are latency-sensitive applications. Uh, they tend to use cluster HPC uh, more often. And some of the characteristics for cluster HPC is um, you essentially uh, need to have access to uh, your compute infrastructure um, um, that is uh, typically in the form of EC2 instances um, that, are, uh, that can be leveraged. Again, a uh, lot of uh, variations within EC2, right? You have the compute optimized, you have the storage optimized. Uh, there, there are uh, accelerated compute options in EC2. Um, and then, uh, again, uh, with the... Um, with the latest uh, generation of EC2 instances, you could also have Intel Xeon processors, uh, essentially with the advanced uh, floating point operations that can be uh, implemented, um, encrypt data at rest, right, uh, and uh, boost your uh, processor clock rate uh, for peak loads. So um, with some uh, configuration tweaks, like for example, you could do placement groups and enhanced networking. Um, uh, placement groups are important where uh, if you have uh, requirements for running uh, uh, HPC compute, uh, where there is a lot of data traffic going uh, between the compute nodes and the storage uh, underlying storage devices, uh, then you would obviously have the proximity matters. Uh, because why, why does proximity matters in HPC uh, clusters? Because uh, you want to reduce your latency and jitter. Uh, when multiple task nodes are coordinating the tasks uh, for, to run uh, HPC. Um, for on the other side of the equation, which is the focus of this session, uh, there is grid HPC. Uh, grid HPC is different uh, in the sense that these are loosely coupled uh, 
parallel, uh, parallel infrastructure, right? Uh, it can, uh, uh, it is not as uh, latency sensitive uh, as cluster HPCs are. However, you, you need to be able to have uh, scaling ability, both scale out and scale in ability, and also, obviously, which will reduce mm -hmm. costs uh, when compared to running a, a steady state application like a, a cluster HPC, right? And um, state is uh, very important. If you have workloads that have state information that needs to be uh, uh, implemented, then implementing a grid HPC with serverless Lambda, uh, you would have to make sure you have uh, state written to persistent storage, either S3 or Dynamo, uh, to make sure that persistent uh, uh, state information is acquired by the next processing worker. Uh, so that is uh, the key difference there, uh, that uh, A, uh, these are loosely coupled applications that are mostly um, uh, suitable for grid HPC, and also if you have any state information that requires, uh, as, as part of your processing workload, you need to write your state to uh, persistent storage. So that's the key differences. And then there is also a variation that we have seen in the industry where uh, you could uh, technically have uh, a grid of clusters. Essentially, what you're going to have is you, you're using a grid strategy to implement uh, uh, parallelism, uh, parallel workloads um, coordinated through cluster HPCs, right? So that's the third option. But mostly it is the, either the cluster HPC workloads or grid HPC, and the focus of this session will be grid HPC. All right, now that we have reviewed uh, uh, HPC workloads, uh, now let's look into how grid computing uh, is implemented across financial services industry. And this is not, uh, by the way, when I say grid computing uh, implementation, this is not specific to uh, financial services only. This is extendable to pretty much any workload that has these uh, certain characteristics. We are going to talk about what are the grid computing characteristics later uh, during the session. Uh, but for financial services, uh, financial services um, institutions uh, the the uh, core uh, concepts with uh, some of the workloads are financial simulations are essential uh, to the operations uh, of uh, financial services institutions, right? Uh, they need to be able to do a lot of simulations uh, for based on the market feeds um, and able to manage. Uh, why do they need to do simulations? Because they have to A, identify uh, uh, risks and manage risks. Uh, optimize on capital uh, and make informed investment decisions and pricing decisions based on the uh, simulation uh, results, right? So there are real uh, tangible benefits of running simulations, large-scale simulations uh, uh, for product development for financial services uh, institutions. Uh, the financial services industry as such has long advanced grid computing um, it, the, some of the common patterns is, uh, uh, is over here, capital management and reporting. These are uh, regulatory requirements uh, that are part, uh, that are mandated by law, where, for example, CCAR, solvency, and FRTB, uh, these are some of the requirements to make sure uh, they can do, uh, again, uh, there, there is capital stress testing that's done. We're going to be touching on that topic later. That's one use case. The second one is risk management. Again, uh, portfolio simulations are central 
uh, to uh, running risk management um, by portfolio managers. They do that to optimize not only for uh, opportunities, but also look for, uh, uh, for uh, new opportunities and cost savings and any impact of hypothetical changes, be it regulatory changes or market conditions, uh, and how, uh, uh, how to evaluate those effects on the workload, right? And then contract pricing and valuation. This is also a very, um, uh, very important use case for many FSIs, uh, FSIs, financial services institutions. Uh, this is to calculate and uh, um, uh, do simulations for uh, credit and interest rate derivatives. And then finally, for product and strategy development. So there are real uh, concrete use cases for grid computing that has been already uh, uh, being implemented uh, in the industry today. Uh, this particular uh, uh, use case uh, is going to go deeper into what are some of the complexities with running uh, financial services modeling. So let's go one step deeper now. Now that we understand grid computing, HPC, and their use case in the financial services industry, why is financial modeling so complex, right? Um, if, you, if you look at that, the need to conduct compute-intensive workloads, the calculations, the simulations in areas such as risk management, uh, regulatory compliance, this is, all these are uh, are not new to the financial services industry. However, what has changed in the recent past is the volume of data that they are dealing with and also increased uh, um, uh, timeliness of these calculations. So timely calculations with massive amount of massive influx of data, that is causing a lot of issues uh, with the uh, on-premise uh, grid infrastructure that you may have. Um, I'll tell you some of the uh, complexities here. So the first one is, again, um, uh, I told you about uh, the ability to do, run large-scale simulations for uh, risk analysis models, right? When you're doing those type of modeling, some of the issues that the portfolio managers must be looking at is, uh, well, what are the market risks? Uh, what are the credit risks and li liquidity risks? In general, fluidity in the, uh, in the financial uh, markets, right? So add that with the second uh, 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 variable being broad regulatory requirements. These are when we, uh, there's CCAR. Uh, CCAR is a stress testing mandated by Federal Reserve uh, to large American banks. Uh, again, uh, this is to test the capital adequacy. Uh, same thing with uh, Dodd-Frank. Again, uh, Dodd-Frank is, uh, is uh, American legislation uh, implemented uh, widely. This is. Uh, 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 an offshoot of the 2008 financial crisis that led to Dodd-Frank Act. So, um, and then uh, Basel III, this is a, a solvency requirements uh, for, uh, this is an international framework uh, that is uh, implemented in the financial services industry. So you have these massive amounts of risk analysis that uh, uh, customers have to perform, add the regulatory requirements to the mix, and then you have to have the third uh, variable uh, and the complexity is, uh, like I said, um, large-scale compute-intensive calculations that must be done uh, in order to not just uh, for existing products, but also developing new financial products, right? So if you add these three together, what happens is there is a massive uh, amounts of compute resources that, that require uh, to power these application workloads, right? And then 
uh, to, do, to essentially to run simulations. So the, with, with with wide variety of simulations, one of the patterns that we have observed is, again, uh, let's say uh, you want to do uh, risk-based simulations uh, for, for uh, institution. Uh, they could do one simulation method that uh, we come across is uh, Monte Carlo simulation, which is what uh, um, Ben Liu and others uh, have performed. So let's touch a little bit on that. Uh, what is Monte Carlo simulation? Now that we understand the complexity of the modeling itself, how is the modeling done through Monte Carlo simulation is the, um, is the next point. So what is Monte Carlo simulation? Um, it's a broad class of computational algorithms that are applied uh, to, to obtain numerical results. Um, Monte Carlo simulations uh, are used to model the probability of uh, different outcomes um, uh, in a process that can easily be predicted due to the intervention of random variables. So that's, that's the uh, definition of Monte Carlo. There, there are multiple methods of Monte Carlo simulation. Uh, essentially, it's a, it's a multi-step process. So the first step is you will define uh, what your domain of possible inputs are, and then you perform computations, large-scale computations, on those inputs. And then you need to aggregate the results uh, and then start uh, uh, ingesting those results for your evaluations. Right? So that is Monte Carlo simulation at a very high level. Um, what are the applications for Monte Carlo simulation? Is it uh, uh, standard uh, only specific to financial services industry? Not really. It, it has wide spectrum of uh, implementations, um, physical sciences, um, uh, again, in engineering, microelectronics, to fluid dynamics, to telecommunications. And we just uh, spoke about the financial services industry. Uh, so finance and business for risk analysis, um, computational biology, and there is also game simulation. Uh, so in artificial intelligence, uh, Monte Carlo simulation is used for game simulation. Uh, one such uh, implementation is uh, actually used uh, through tree search operation. So that it's a wide uh, implementation. This is not just specific to uh, financial services uh, industry. So now we have reviewed a lot. We reviewed uh, HPC, then grid computing, and then we understood uh, there is a, a complexity involved with financial modeling. And then within the financial modeling, we have seen one such use case, which is Monte Carlo simulation. Now, now that we understand what the business need is, what are some of the uh, issues of running uh, such simulations uh, on-premise, right? The first and foremost issue that you run into uh, uh, running uh, large-scale simulations is large capital expenditure. CapEx is a very big issue when, you, when it comes to grid infrastructure. Uh, why is that? Because you would, uh, to do, to do uh, how many uh, are familiar uh, with, uh, uh, with uh, grid computing? So, yeah, so you, you, you probably uh, have seen this in, the, um, in your own uh, environments where uh, large investments are needed uh, to stand up uh, grid computing infrastructure. Uh, mostly, uh, you, you would have a two-year plan or a three-year plan. Uh, you quantify your requirements, and then you start uh, building your infrastructure based on the analysis that you have. And then what happens is, um, you, you would have to continually uh, iterate and maintain a, 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 an internal SLA or an OLA to, to maintain the uptime of the service, right? 
So just think about for a second, if you're doing, uh, if your requirement is you need to have a, a, a resilient uh, architecture uh, for grid computing, you would have to think about HA, right? <coughs> HA clustering is key to that, making sure there is no single point of failure. When you talk about uh, HA clustering, there, there is a lot of issues, there are a lot of variables uh, that, uh, that the data scientists may not be looking at, but the infrastructure engineers will be looking at. For example, what happens if my storage layer, uh, uh, the, the access to the storage layer is broke? So you would have to do some sort of redundancy there. How do people do that? Maybe if you have fiber channel arrays, you probably have multiple dual HPA cards uh, running, right? And then if you have NAS devices, you probably have uh, multiple NIC cards teaming, uh, either NIC teaming or NIC bonding at the hypervisor layer. And then that would be connected to dual uh, switches. Uh, then that has to be through HSRP implementation. Uh, that, that's just two variables, right? And then you may have to do some sort of a disk metering for OS. A lot of uh, overhead and a lot of uh, heavy lifting just to support that infrastructure, right? And then there is limited capacity, um, right? I mean, this is, uh, you have provisioned uh, uh, grid, and now if you have a necessity to scale, why do you have to have uh, the ability to scale? Because as the market conditions are changing, there is always, uh, and, and add to that the regulatory requirements to go back and do simulations for the last, say, X years. So you would have to ingest a large amount of data sets and be able to do simulations, which means you need to be have, uh, having that level of uh, uh, expandability, the elasticity, and scaling options, right? That is one of the issues what we have encountered with uh, uh, customers uh, having issues with on-prem grid, right? And then on-prem uh, grid uh, has certain cores. So if, uh, if you are a smaller uh, financial institution, maybe you would have uh, 10,000 cores, uh, CPU cores or so. Uh, anyone uh, familiar with over 50,000 cores uh, here? So there, if you are a mid-scale um, financial institution, it is not uncommon to have uh, a compute grid with 50,000 cores requirement, right? And then if you are talking about a global financial institution, it's not uncommon to have a requirement for 100,000 cores uh, just to run uh, various uh, risk analysis and simulations. So the point I'm trying to make here is when you have that complexity and when you have these variable workloads, you just cannot have a static grid with a static compute uh, uh, type, right? Um, for the various workloads, some may be I/O intensive workloads, some may be CPU intensive workloads. So, for, so for some workloads may require a lot of uh, uh, in-memory caching requirements. But then your on-prem grid cannot really adjust to all these computational changes, right? So it's it's a static grid uh, unless you go through the refresh cycle every so often and uh, update the grid uh, with, with new compute uh, and storage layer. So it's always a constant refresh cycle that you're, uh, and also limitations that you're bound with, right? And then regulatory and market uh, fluctuations, we did talk about that. Uh, that. Why is that important? Because that will change the amount of storage uh, layer uh, uh, that you would have to configure, and also the amount of data that you're going to be ingesting into grid computing, right? Um, 
So finally, all these issues uh, end up with uh, um, limiting your ability to run simulations because your data center capacity is limited. This is where uh, it, it starts to hurt customers because they cannot either they have to wait for uh, expanding their grid uh, computing framework, uh, under, expand the infrastructure uh, to support new workloads or increased simulations, right? So just look at some of the uh, patterns. In, in a uh, HPC compute uh, scenario, what happens is you don't know what are some of the simulation requirements would look like as because it's all variable based on the market conditions. On the x-axis here, I'm uh, depicting here actual demand for compute, so your data scientists may be asking, hey, I need to run petabyte scale grid, uh, grid operation, grid simulation, um, so uh, I, I would need so many uh, compute uh, cycles to run my simulation. And then on the y-axis, you have your provisioning, right, where provisioning times to increase your uh, compute grid. So what happens here is, say you run into a situation where your on-premise grid is at capacity, and then there is new requirements to expand uh, newer simulations or new product development, then you have to go through a server acquisition and provisioning of new servers and attaching that to the grid and expanding the grid. So obviously, as you can clearly see, there are times where your projects could get delayed because of uh, uh, provisioning of the server infrastructure for an expanding grid. So that is one of the key issues, what we have observed. And ultimately, uh, what happens is uh, grid uh, adding capacity is both time intensive and capital intensive. So that, 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 that has a, a, a direct effect for many customers, right? Um, and grid users, which are typically the data scientists, um, seek the fastest possible time to results because they have a large data set that they have to worry about. So in the end, the, the jobs get delayed, the jobs get queued, and that will essentially throttle your innovation. Uh, that, that is the net effect of having limited grid capacity in your on-premise infrastructure. So with that problem statement, uh, then we started uh, working with customers, and we have seen uh, uh, financial services uh, customers uh, attempting to extend their existing grid infrastructure into AWS Cloud. So you still have your on-prem grid, and then now you're extending the compute uh, uh, capabilities into AWS. And how is that done, and why is it done, is what uh, we're going to talk next. This is about grid computing on AWS. Um, so by building and running um, compute grids with AWS, companies are, are able to leverage and execute a larger number of parallel tasks, which is very key, like I mentioned, um, about the degree of parallelism has a, a direct impact on your simulations, right? And increase the speed and analysis and reduce time to results. Um, how is that done? So let's, let's talk about one, one by one some of the issues that we earlier discussed. So virtually unlimited compute and storage resources. You may have heard uh, uh, we, well, some of the best practices that we advocate is you need to decouple compute and storage. Uh, not only that from a, from a breakpoint analysis, but also to be able to scale independently of each other. Um, and you have... Once you have your storage uh, uh, layer separate from your compute layer, 
you are no longer uh, tied to idle time of compute. You could do uh, uh, variations in the compute um, and also variations with the compute types uh, to achieve uh, your, uh, your processing needs. Uh, various compute options. So this is very important. So uh, as I told you earlier, with on-premise grid, you're essentially buying into uh, uh, hardware that you feel will be sat satisfactorily be able to uh, apply all the comput computational needs, right? But then what happens is, as your workload characteristics change, you, you no longer will be able to change your compute infrastructure. That issue goes away with uh, AWS because at the compute layer, you have wide variety of EC2 flavors. If, it, if you really need HPC clusters to be run on EC2, but on uh, grid computing side, you can easily extend that to uh, AWS Lambda. So that gives you a, a greater amount of flexibility, lower TCO, and not to have to worry about uh, running and maintaining virtual machines and all the bootstrapping that has to go through virtual machines, right? So that's there. Cost optimization, of course, as, uh, as I mentioned earlier, if you can execute uh, the jobs uh, by not have to worry about uh, infrastructure, by abstracting the infrastructure, you are focusing on your core business development, your core product development, and let Amazon handle uh, the server infrastructure for whatever HA or uh, high availability requirements that you may have, right? Enhanced security. You can all extend, uh, again, uh, with uh, Lambda, you can extend the, uh, uh, there is a, a, a wide range of security features on AWS that you could integrate with uh, for, your, for whatever compliance and security needs that you may have. Um, and then expanding uh, big data capabilities. So once you have data in S3, say, uh, for argument's sake, you built a, a data lake on S3, and then you ingest the data, whatever mechanism, be it Kinesis, or maybe you're ingesting data through a private connection through a direct connect within a VPN overlay for, for encrypted data. Once you ingest the data into S3, you now have the option to do transformations on the raw data and then essentially use that process, the data, to do whatever computational, additional computation needs, not just simulation work, but you could actually extend that to business intelligence, like uh, uh, in, uh, loading the data into Redshift for data warehouse, uh, and then uh, doing your visualizations, like say using QuickSight or Tableau or whatever um, data visualization techniques uh, that, that you use, right? So you are extending that capability by just separating the compute and storage, uh, and, and at a lower cost and performant, uh, as you can imagine, uh, S3 comes with 11 nines of durability, so you don't have to worry about how do I make sure my SLAs for my uh, storage layer are met. Now, because now it is a managed service, you don't have to really worry about maintaining the, uh, the storage infrastructure, right? And then automation capabilities. As you probably are aware already, these are all API calls. You could auto scale. Uh, and there is uh, concurrency that you can achieve with uh, Lambda functions uh, or auto-scaling in terms of EC2. Uh, and, and provisioning of resources becomes very easy uh, just based on, again, your need, right? And ultimately, all these factors will help you uh, by, by, with the product development that is faster time to market, but also faster time for results for data scientists. The crux of the problem was, how do I get results faster in a cheaper way? 
and that, that is also extendable uh, to uh, other uh, users of the same data set. So that can be easily achieved uh, by leveraging uh, AWS with all these various services. All right. Moving on, so now let's uh, go uh, more, uh, in, before I get into the use case and uh, uh, the details of the use case, I quickly wanted to highlight so what are some of the uh, typical characteristics of grid computing. It's important to understand, first of all, A, you need the ability to host uh, large data sets. That's where S3 comes into play. Uh, the ability to do resource sharing. Why do we have to do resource sharing? Because you may have raw feeds coming where the market data may be coming uh, uh, into your organization, and you may have multiple teams of data scientists who may be running different uh, simulation jobs, different activities, right? So you need to be able to have that raw data be available to multiple teams uh, to be able to do that. So the resource sharing is extremely important. And periodic uh, uh, and uh, scheduled tasks, right? Most of those, these are, as you probably know, uh, uh, some market simulations, risk simulations that financial services customers do, these are not OLTP transactional type databases. You, this is, by the very word, it's analytical da uh, data, so you have large amounts of data stored and then run analytics on top of that, right? So you don't really have that uh, transactional type workload, uh, so you need to be able to do uh, uh, scheduled tasks, not re real time in general. And then ability to do transformations, uh, very important, because your simulations may, be, again, vary based on the market fees and more, uh, what type of uh, uh, simulation activity within uh, Monte Carlo or any other simulation activity. Uh, whatever your, your goal of achieving uh, the, the data analysis, you need to be able to uh, transform the data, the raw data. It may be as simple as converting uh, your raw into uh, ORC or Parquet or uh, things like that, or just uh, whatever the format that you're getting into, into a JSON doc or, or a text document, right? So those transformations are important for you. And usually some of the characteristics with good computing is these are non-interactive, long-running simulation jobs, right? So with that uh, characteristics, let's go into uh, how do you implement Monte Carlo on AWS? So the key to that is uh, you're leveraging the MapReduce framework. This is extremely important to, uh, to do uh, on, uh, to, to run Monte Carlo simulations uh, in the cloud. And to level set, what is, uh, what is MapReduce framework? And why is it important for Monte Carlo simulation? So the, the framework, again, the here uh, in the picture, uh, this is an overview of the framework itself. You have a master node. Uh, that assigns map and reduce tasks to worker nodes. Um, as you can see, this, there, is a, there is a splitter, which is essentially a, a bunch of input files, and then you get uh, the, map the mapper nodes, uh, take the, the, uh, the data set, and then they uh, process the data set. Input files are split, uh, split into chunks and are processed individually by the worker nodes, and then uh, produce a stream of intermediary key value data which is again, which could also be hosted on S3, just like your raw files. Uh, and then records are selectively read by the reducer tasks, uh, the, the task nodes, and then aggregated the results. So this is where the most of the transformations are happening, right? So this is a classic example of how uh, Monte Carlo simulation can be implemented um, uh, using MapReduce framework. So 
Now, when we talk about MapReduce framework, uh, the first thing uh, a lot of you must be thinking, wait a minute, MapReduce for me means Redshift, EMR, and the entire Hadoop ecosystem, right? That is absolutely true. Uh, you could, you could uh, have a Hadoop framework offer comprehensive uh, solutions for big data processing. No question about that. However, if you, if you think about the uh, complexity of uh, uh, running a Hadoop ecosystem, uh, there, there are a lot of nuances. There are a lot of coordination. There's a lot of bootstrapping that, that needs to be done before you could actually use it, right? Um, apart from uh, the benefit of not having to uh, manage any servers with a serverless uh, framework, you would also uh, have significant uh, uh, cost savings if you try to do this in a serverless way versus, say, uh, running this on, on uh, the traditional way, right? Uh, using uh, EMR, Redshift, and uh, other variables. So this is one uh, variation of the standard uh, MapReduce framework. Um, what are, what are, so on the, on the picture here, you can see how you still have the, uh, the same MapReduce framework that we discussed in the previous slide. Uh, you are extending that into the serverless side where you are ingesting the data. You're still storing in the input bucket and you are triggering an event uh, where there are mapper functions that take the data set and then, uh, the, the, and uh, with uh, Lambda, as I discussed earlier, there is no uh, session state that you can store within Lambda, right? So you have to write it back to a persistent store. So here, uh, there is a coordinator Lambda function in the middle. As you can see, uh, the coordinator is essentially uh, writing the session state uh, back to S3, and then the reducer uh, Lambda functions are, again, uh, there is a, uh, the concurrent uh, Lambda functions that are triggered to take those tasks and essentially aggregate those results and write the result data set back into S3. So a simple MapReduce framework that we discussed can easily be extended into a, a serverless design uh, with this particular framework. Again, what are some of the goals of uh, why do we have to stand up something like this? Well, what, what, are, what am I achieving by doing that? Is essentially abstract infrastructure management. If you are a data scientist and you want to use, uh, say, the traditional approach, uh, then you would have to understand the Hadoop ecosystem, how to use EMR, right? Um, so uh, unless, yeah, and there, there was a ramp up to that too, right? Um, so uh, with the serverless framework, what you could do is, uh, first of all, you're abstracting the infrastructure management and almost close to zero setup time. You could essentially wrap this whole thing into a CloudFormation template and create multiple environments uh, for your different teams uh, for, for them to do analysis and still have access to the same data set. Why? Because you're essentially uh, using the same raw data set that is on S3, right? Uh, and then you can do access management, uh, the identity and access management through by extending your, your corporate SSO uh, with uh, IAM roles and essentially doing assume role uh, to uh, give specific permissions to your uh, data scientists or users. So that's the implementation for this specific uh, uh, task. Uh, it, on the same uh, pattern, this is, this is the pattern that Fannie Mae has implemented, uh, which uh, Ben and uh, 
uh, John, uh, they, they have uh, extensively worked on implementing. So this is a small variation of uh, the one that we discussed earlier. Uh, here, as you can see, there is uh, S3 input files. The, the raw files are inputted into uh, S3. And then there is an EC2 splitter function. Then you may have a question about why are we doing an EC2 splitter function? Because uh, at the time, uh, again, there, there are large data sets that were coming in. And as you probably know, Lambda has an execution timeout, uh, so it has to complete within five minutes interval. Some of the splitter functionality was extending beyond that timeout threshold. So to work around, uh, this was, uh, uh, the workaround was uh, use the EC2 as a splitter function and then uh, ingest that into, uh, well, the, after the large data sets are split into multiple chunks, the smaller chunks are inserted into uh, S3 bucket, and then your, your MapReduce uh, activity is triggered through Lambda functions. So I hope that makes sense, the, the difference between why EC2 splitter versus the previous slide, uh, where it was purely serverless. So it all depends on, it, uh, the, the, the idea here is, based on your workload characteristics and your data set size, you can easily change the architecture and, and do uh, uh, essentially MapReduce uh, activity in multiple ways. And you can achieve this uh, very easily and uh, very, in a repeatable fashion. And for, so we, we discussed about the compute part portion, but what about my, uh, we, did, we did talk about my, the regulations, right? and security concerns, uh, or how do I protect my data, Some, uh, not just financial services, but uh, other customers too in other industries have questions about, okay, I may be carrying uh, NPI data, NPI stands for non-public information, or PII, like publicly, uh, uh, right, uh, personally identifiable information, very critical. This may be uh, confidential data or highly confidential data. So if you have classifications like those, and you want to be able to make sure you are uh, securing the data, you can easily extend that through a AWS KMS. Uh, it's, it's a key management service. Um, um, and um, if you have any uh, compliance requirements, you can, uh, for data uh, encryption in transit, like I said earlier, you can always do VPN, and VPN over DX to uh, encrypt your data in transit and encrypting data at rest can easily be achieved through KMS keys, right? Uh, CloudWatch, again, now extensively used for uh, not only monitoring, but also triggering events. Uh, and all this end-to-end -end solution can easily be uh, treated as an infrastructure as a code through CloudFormation templates. Very easy to duplicate the environment uh, and recreate as necessary. Uh, and then CloudTrail, if you have, again, uh, you may be interfacing with auditors, both internal auditors, external auditors, and they may have questions about who had access to this data, who manipulated the data, and what are the API calls that were uh, used to manipulate the data. So if things like that come up, you can easily use uh, CloudTrail, which will help you identify those uh, API calls, and you can integrate uh, CloudTrail logs. Uh, there's a wide variety of implementations, both in-house and also third-party solutions or partner solutions. Uh, that can actually be leveraged to uh, alert back on-prem. Uh, and then you can control uh, the access to the data set itself uh, uh, at a very granular level through IAM. Uh, there, there are many implementations, uh, both uh, IAM roles and resource-based constraints and things like that. So that's a, a, a holistic view of how you can uh, maintain, maintain and manage uh, your uh, grid computing infrastructure. 
Uh, a slight variation here. Uh, the, the previous one uh, was the splitter functionality. Here it's uh, batch processing. Uh, the only difference being uh, the mapper results are inserted into the, the, the DynamoDB table here. Uh, so just a different uh, perspective here, uh, a different architecture. Um, you can easily extend that. The same thing, again, carrying on with the theme. Uh, there is, uh, if you have any real-time uh, uh, file processing uh, that needs to be done. Another uh, method is, again, you, you use S3 as your data lake, your ingest point, and then you uh, trigger an SNS notification uh, that will uh, essentially uh, create, uh, invoke uh, a Lambda functions from there. And then the rest is the uh, same. You could, uh, the, the persistent store could be Dynamo or uh, S3, right? So uh, quickly, uh, this, we're almost coming uh, to the end of the first segment where Lambda considerations uh, are important uh, for your um, grid computing framework, right? So some of the important uh, data points here are functions or a unit of deployment, uh, so you can scale uh, per request and never pay for idle and skip the mundane activities like maintaining servers, patching servers, uh, be able to maintain your container environments and things like that. So you don't have to do that, right? You can provision this on the fly, meaning we take care of that uh, uh, from the AWS end. All you have to do is to maintain your code set and uh, focus on your business deliverables instead of the infrastructure, right? So that is what is essentially the key uh, to this. Uh, for Again, like I mentioned uh, multiple times, uh, do remember AWS Lambda is stateless, so if you have any state information uh, that needs to be uh, handled, then you would have to write to a persistent store. The execution environment that your Lambda function is running in, it, it will not stay persistent, right? So you need to keep that in mind. So this is a container environment, but that container will go away or might go away in the subsequent invocation. So you have to think about if you have state information requirement, write it to a persistent store, bottom line, right? Um, and then uh, for low-level ETL tasks, you can use uh, on the container itself, you, you get access to a temp file space. Uh, you could use that uh, up to 500 MB uh, for low-level ETL before writing the results uh, back to your persistent store, right? And then, like I mentioned earlier, a broad uh, a range of uh, options that you have to control. Any, any security concerns that you may have uh, we have a robust set of security tools to help you manage uh, the boundary. And if you have to run your workloads inside a contained environment, inside a private, most of the customers also I've seen where they want to run their workloads in, 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 their, in a uh, uh, private IP space, right? Uh, so you could extend uh, that RFC 1918 uh, address space, which you are already using internally in your production fabric onto AWS by creating uh, private uh, subnets, uh, and routing the uh, request through your DX connection or VPN connection uh, to your VPC and execute Lambda functions inside your VPC through ENI, right? So if you have such requirements, it's very easy, very extensible framework, uh, that, uh, the one that we spoke about. With that, um, I will hand off the mic uh, to my co-presenter, Bin Lu, who will walk us through uh, uh, Fannie Mae's use case. Thank you. Good evening. My name is Bing Lu. I'm director of risk modeling and analytics at Fannie Mae. 
I'm going to talk about high-performance computing using AWS Lambda for financial modeling. Fannie Mae is a leading source of financing for mortgage lenders. We provide access to affordable mortgage financing in all market conditions. We effectively manage and reduce risk to our business, taxpayers, and the housing finance system. Fannie Mae's credit portfolio size is about $3 trillion. Financial modeling is a simulation process to project future cash flows. Fannie Mae uses the financial modeling process for managing mortgage risk on a daily basis. We use it for mortgage underwriting, valuation, risk management, financial reporting, regulatory reporting, loss mitigation, and loan removal. Every month, we generate more than 10 quadrillions of cash flows in hundreds of economic scenarios. High-performance computing grids is a key infrastructure component for financial modeling. Fannie Mae's existing high-performance computing facility no longer meets our growing business needs. It is more than seven years old with limited I.O., compute, and storage capacities. It has complex distributed computing API for application development, and it is very costly to maintain and to refresh. It takes more than half a year to add any incremental computing resources and deploy any new application. We were looking for a new high-performance computing facility that enables us to react to the rapidly changing market. We want to have access to unlimited compute resources and unlimited storage. We want the facility to be reliable, easy to manage, and stay current. We also want the facility to be cost-effective. On the application side, we want the facility to provide simple distributed computing APIs. We want to be able to maximize reuse of our existing code base, and we want to be able to deliver the new solution in short time. AWS Serverless Computing offers the ideal solution to the new business requirement. Fannie Mae began to build the new high-performance computing platform using Lambda in 2016. This is the first high-performance computing platform using serverless architecture in the industry. It is also the first pilot program at Fannie Mae to build this cloud-native application. Since Fannie Mae is in a highly regulated industry, it took us more than half a year to build the infrastructure that meets our information security standard. Once the infrastructure is constructed, we were able to deploy the first working prototype within a month. In March 2017, we deployed the first financial modeling application to pre-production 
and ran on 15,000 concurrent Lambda executions. And in June 2017, we completed our production migration of the first four financial modeling applications. This is a performance testing result of our new serverless high-performance computing platform. We ran one simulation of approximately 20 million mortgages on 15,000 Lambda executions. It took one half hours, which is more than four times faster than the existing process. The Lambda service provisions three Lambda executions instantaneously at the start. It then automatically provisions additional 12,000 Lambda within the first 50 minutes. The performance of the Lambda does not degrade during the ramp up time. As you can see on the chart, the Lambda invocation rate increases linearly as a function of time. The Lambda CPU efficiency is close to 100%. The actual elapsed time is consistent with the estimated elapsed time based on Lambda billing time. This is a reference architecture for the simple parallel process using Lambda service. MapReduce framework is used for managing the high-performance computing workload. Serverless computing is event-driven computing. The central idea here is to leverage Lambda capability to perform the map function and automatically execute n copies of code simultaneously based on input events. S3 is used to store the input events and output data. We divide the process into three functions, splitter, mapper, and reducer. EC2 is used to split the input file and write n triggers to S3 event bucket. The mapper is to perform the distributed computing. Lambda is used to automatically carry out n executions and write output to S3 mapper bucket. The reducer is to aggregate the output data. EC2 is used again to aggregate the outputs and write final result to S3 reducer bucket. We can decompose complex workload into multiple simple ones for parallel computing using Lambda service. Athena is also a good serverless tool to aggregate the output data. There are many benefits of using serverless high-performance computing platform. First of all, it is cost-effective. We never pay for idle. The cost is based on actual vCPU usage in the unit of 100 milliseconds, not the elapsed time or maximum processing capacity of the infrastructure. We can achieve performance at zero cost. For example, the cost of running one lambda for 15,000 hours 
is the same as the cost of running 15,000 lambdas for one hour. It also shortens the time to market. We are able to burst to cloud immediately to access additional cloud computing resources. We're able to focus on our business need. There's no server to manage and no complex distributed computing code to write. AWS ecosystem also provides a streamlined integration with big data analytic platform for data mining and machine learning for further analysis, visualization, and reporting. The following are best practices for running high-performance computing workload using Lambda service. First, we need to break down complex business logics into multiple simple ones for distributed computing using Lambda service. We need to maximize S3 performance by evenly distributing the key names of the objects. We need to set up a separate Lambda account for unlimited access of the resources without running out of IP addresses. We also need to adopt microservice architecture to migrate one business application at a time and integrate with AWS code pipeline and SAM for CICD and DevOps. Fannie Mae is planning to complete migration of major financial modeling applications to AWS in 2018. Thank you. Quickly, I wanted to uh, showcase, so you can extend this framework that we talked about, how uh, Fannie Mae has implemented this solution. Uh, you could extend this framework uh, to your own uh, uh, environments. And there is actually a blog post uh, that we published. Uh, the information is there in the appendix. Uh, you, you can get access to the slides to get more information on uh, finding the blog post. So uh, qu quickly, I wanted to showcase some aspects of uh, running this, uh, uh, the, the results of the code is published in uh, GitHub. You can clearly uh, access and, uh, uh, the code and download the configs and uh, run this uh, and extend this framework. One important uh, feature um, that I wanted to talk about is, again, uh, you need to write very simple. This is extremely easy, very uh, uh, easy to replicate in your own environments, a simple uh, uh, creating an IAM um, uh, policy here, giving permissions for the Lambda functions to uh, do two things, right? One is access to the S3 bucket. Um, the, the prefixes are defined uh, through internally in a JSON document. And then uh, you are also giving permissions uh, to, uh, to, to create the log stream, right? Uh, so you're giving access to the log stream, and then you are creating uh, uh, this uh, role. And once you have the role defined, uh, you can go to your Lambda function. And essentially, I'll, I'll give you an example on how it looks like. Um, and essentially, you're, you're defining uh, your, your execution role right there. Um, that is how you are giving permissions for Lambda, uh, the Lam uh, big Lambda role. 
and then you are managing your environment by giving the memory uh, that it uh, requires to run and also setting the threshold for uh, timeouts. So that's as simple as that. You could, uh, you could extend this framework uh, and write your own code or, or, or essentially duplicate this uh, MapReduce framework with Lambda that is available on GitHub uh, to get results uh, that you desire. Um, and just looking at some of the CloudWatch metrics, here is some information. When you run that uh, code, you essentially get an, uh, um, access to, you can quickly review some of the uh, details that is published uh, uh, to the uh, log groups, the CloudWatch log groups, uh, as part of the Lambda invocation itself. So you can actually see uh, the invocation and as the mapper function and the reducer function uh, are, are uh, um, working on the splitter files and then uh, writing the, uh, uh, the processed files back to the S3. You can actually see that in the, um, in the log groups, right? Um, and then uh, finally, I just wanted to uh, do a quick wrap here. Um, So uh, uh, Lambda servers, again, uh, just to wrap up, uh, it can be extended uh, to the MapReduce framework. One of the, some of the advantages here is uh, uh, you can uh, trigger events, uh, no servers to manage, flexible scaling, no idle capacity. You're not worrying about spot instances or reserved instances and things like that, right? Uh, high availability, I discussed extensively how difficult it is to maintain HA on-prem. You're essentially offloading that heavy lifting to AWS uh, and focusing on your code, your de development uh, efforts, and your business outcomes, right? Um, and then you can bring your own code. You can also, again, uh, those are language support. Um, if you have any libraries, uh, the custom libraries that you may have, you could leverage custom libraries inside uh, Lambda functions. Um, and pretty simple resource model that we have already discussed with respect to just two variables, your memory requirement, and um, uh, your execution timeout, right? And then we discussed about pro uh, programming model uh, with Lambda um, and the statelessness uh, and how to maintain session state and things like that. Monitoring and logging is extensive. Uh, but they're, they're all built-in metrics uh, that you could leverage. Um, and authoring functions is pretty straightforward, and your whatever um, execution environment that you're already familiar with, you could use that um, uh, for that. Event sources, the, this, uh, the list will continue to grow. These are just a few of the event sources I have listed here, uh, but uh, these are standard, many standard implementations for grid computing. We have seen a large implementation with uh, S3 as the data source. Uh, that's we, uh, the, but uh, don't be under the impression that this is just uh, for S3 based only, you can uh, extend this framework. A lot of uh, AI and machine learning also um, it has been integrated. Uh, um, again, API Gateway is a common source too. So please do review some of these characteristics, both from a functional standpoint, what your grid computing can do for you, and also from a technical standpoint on how you can extend this framework in your own environment um, to, to get the res results that you're looking for. So with that, uh, we conclude the session, and uh, please complete your session evaluations, and hopefully you can implement uh, something uh, uh, similar in your environments, and uh, hopefully next year we'll be talking about your use case and your success story. With that, uh, it's a conclude, and thank you all for attending this session.